0: You know what? This is bullshit.
1: Whoa, Rachel, what's up?
0: Miles, how come Jean Grey gets to be the queen of retcons? Look, I know there's the whole clone thing and the dead, not actually dead weight, actually dead stuff and then the being possessed. But you know, honestly, that's a really low bar for the X-Men.
1: So did you have somebody else in mind?
0: Jamie Madrox.
1: Multiple man? I love that guy.
0: So his superpower is self-duplication. I mean, that dude is built to be a retcon tool. Like, look at his significant
1: story arcs. Well, there was the time he died of the legacy virus. Nope, duplicate. Uh, ran off to join the Fallen Angels. Dupe. Hooked up with Monet? Dupe. Hooked up with Siren?
0: Dupe both times, and the second time he impregnated her with another dupe, which he
1: then reabsorbed after its birth. That is... really messed up.
0: Right? See, Madrox retcons make the Jean Phoenix Madeline Pryor stuff look straight up lucid. You know, not to mention wholesome.
1: Okay, so what has Madrox Prime done?
0: Layla Miller, mostly.
1: The kid who broke House of M. Wasn't she, like, Twelve.
0: Yeah, but she jumped into the Forever Yesterday future, learned magic from Dr. Doom, and came back over the Age of Consent.
1: That is awfully summers of her. Did they at least get a happily ever after?
0: Oh, totally. Once Siren took up the mantle of the Goddess Morgan and helped Layla turn Madrox back from the demon form he'd been stuck in since the Civil War in Hell.
1: What?! (laughs)
0: I'm Rachel Edidin.
1: And I'm Miles Stokes. And
0: we are here to explain the X-Men.
1: Because it's about time someone did.
0: Welcome to the 10th episode of Rachel and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
1: This week, we'll be continuing our coverage of Early Claremont, looking at the final handful of issues leading up to the Dark Phoenix saga.
0: So this is the last big push to the Dark Phoenix saga. It gets through a lot of important story, but ultimately it's really building up towards that one thing.
1: And we actually kind of lucked out here in dividing up the pre-Dark Phoenix saga Claremont stuff. We just sort of arbitrarily chose the stopping point between last episode and this one.
0: And shifted a couple issues around.
1: And these these 15 issues, which they run from October of 78 to December of 79, which is around the time that the book went monthly instead of every two months, they're essentially one big story, which are the X-Men trying to get home and... Finally reuniting with their friends.
0: Now, this is a really continuity heavy chunk, so let's do a really quick recap of what's led up to this.
1: Okay, I got this part. Hang on. Previously on Rachel and Miles, explain the X Men. I just love saying that.
0: I feel like that's going a little bit too meta with continuity, though.
1: No such thing. So where do we leave the X-Men?
0: We started with Giant Size X-Men number one, where the new team gets together.
1: So later on, we get Jean Grey, who uh, rejoins up with the team after the most of the original team quit in Giants after Giant Size X-Men number one.
0: They have adventures in space. They crash land. She dies. She comes back as something called the Phoenix.
1: Beast also briefly joins up a little bit before we left off. So where we left off, um, essentially the X-Men had just fought Magneto. He took them in a flying circus cart into space and down to Antarctica. B- the place basically blows up as Magneto leaves, like the end of a video game level.
0: And the X-Men get separated into two groups, each of which thinks the other half are dead.
1: Beast and Phoenix, they end up uh, sort of on one side of a bunch of collapsing debris. They burst force in a big Phoenix flare into the uh you know wintry day slash night of Antarctica
0: they're shortly after saved from imminent death by some guys in a helicopter who take them back to New York where they tell Professor X that everyone else is dead
1: Jean Grey should definitely know more than anyone else that death is always permanent and very simple
0: now that we're done lying um <laughs> They're they're actually, of course, in the Savage Land, um, which is the deeply, deeply paleontologically dubious tropical wonderland in the heart of Antarctica.
1: Now, we've seen the Savage Land in the Silver Age before. The X-Men go there very early on, and they meet uh, Khazar, who's this sort of Tarzani jungle dude who has a saber-toothed tiger named Zabu.
0: They also meet Sauron, who is a never-nude vampire pterosaur. He's literally... A guy who turns into a pterosaur when he eats the energy from mutants, and as a pterosaur goes around in little jean shorts. I love Sauron.
1: He can also hypnotize people by looking them in the eyes, because apparently making villains out of Mad Libs pages is totally the way to go in the Silver Age. Sauron is delightful. We love him. So anyway, the X-Men are in the Savage Land. They've sort of punched their way out of getting buried under debris in Magneto's volcano base.
0: And what they're going to spend the next 15 issues doing is trying to get home. This is sort of the X-Men Odyssey. You've got the two separate groups, each of which are going to be trying to go on with their lives and trying to find their way out of whatever they're in. Eventually, they're finally going to meet back up, but it's going to take them a long time and a whole lot of character development.
1: So the, could we do 1979, a mutant odyssey? No. But I like it.
0: Yeah, but Gene shorts.
1: I don't see how that's a counter argument, but it's nonetheless valid.
0: Also, if we actually frame this as as an odyssey, we're going to have to go into direct parallels. And that means that there's going to be a whole lot of really confusing Cyclops disambiguation.
1: Oh, boy. There's enough of that already. Everyone is Eric the Red. are, Are you Eric the Red? No. So, yes, they're in the Savage Land having punched their way through the ground like you do. Uh, Cyclops is actually the only one that's been there before while we do have some of these characters who were around before Giants has X-Men number one uh, specifically Banshee and Wolverine their adventures have never taken them to the Savage Land, and they've never even heard of it.
0: Cyclops, on the other hand, has spent a ton of time in the Savage Land, both briefly in the Silver Age and then in the long X-Men The Hidden Years series by John Byrne, which nominally bridges the Silver Age and the Claremont run. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I think that this whole story is really boring.
1: You know, I'm, I'm not going to disagree. Now, we've talked about how certain non-big mutant metaphor TM things can really work for the X-Men. So like, you know, crazy space pirate stuff. Is awesome. It is awesome. Time travel stuff, totally. The Savage Land
0: feels like them moonlighting in someone else's comic, and it's not that interesting. As far as I'm concerned, this arc has two things going for it. Okay. The first one is a general Savage Land thing, which is that the entire arc is basically nonstop scenes of people beating the shit out of pterodactyls, and (laughs) pterodactyls are by far the most punchable large extinct reptiles. They are so punchable. They're basically prehistoric stock villains they are to Savage Land type settings what nazis are to generic european spy adventures
1: okay or zombies are to everything coming out in the early 2010s i, I can definitely agree with that i'm not going to say anything bad about punching dinosaurs
0: the other thing i love about this a few episodes ago in episode 7 when we talked to greg rucka about cyclops and corsair uh x-men 114 has my favorite stupid continuity moment yes, of I this yes w- i love this one which is that cyclops figures out that he's got some kind of connection to Corsair because he's been in the Savage Land and he's, he hasn't shaved in a few days and he starts to shave and he sees his reflection with just a mustache. And he realizes that he totally looks like Corsair, and also that he generally looks kind of piratical. And then he just goes around with just the crappy two-day mustache for a while.
1: Hey, hey, some people can't grow good facial hair, and while I am not one of them, I nonetheless respect their their attempts to do so, each to the best of his ability, etc. You know,
0: here's the thing, though, is that he can actually pull off, like, the general scruffiness pretty well. Like, crappy three-day beard Cyclops... Actually works, but with just the mustache, it's just kind of sad.
1: His father, though, goddamn, that dude can rock a mustache.
0: You know, he's earned it. He's been in space. He has access to Shi'ar mustache technology.
1: I I feel like that would give him sort of a big feathery-looking, strange Centauri from Babylon 5-looking mustache, though.
0: I think that we can hope that that Rucka will be exploring this further in the Cyclops Ongoing series. You know, Greg, we know you listened to this. Uh, We really hope that this is a point you'll address This is important. The people need to know. I
1: want a six issue arc about this, a full trade paperback. Anyway, The Savage Land. Let's talk about what happens in The Savage Land. Because while the plot is not super, super relevant, we should at least briefly cover it. Colossus gets laid. That is definitely one of the things that happens. So, one of the things, many things I like about Claremont is that he doesn't feel the need to show every single step of a story. He can just sort of imply. Well, clearly, this stuff happened. So, for instance, we go from the X Men just getting to the Savage Land and a pterosaur picking up Banshee and Wolverine just murdering it horribly, brutally. There's like tearing and blood, and everyone's disgusted. And Wolverine there doesn't is give not a shit. blood. I don't know. It's it's red, like ripped flesh stuff. I think that's 70s yeah, but it's for- the
0: same color as its skin.
1: None, I, one can assume yes, right. there would be blood if ter, if pterosaurs have blood, there is some coming. Pterosaurs out. are bloodless. Is that one of the reasons they're jerks?
0: They are figments of pure punchability made flesh.
1: Um, the next team, next time we see them, they're in this village of some of the people who live in the Savage Land, which are sort of caveman, savagey-esque. They're they're really just uh, a bunch of people with big mohawks. And it's basically
0: a really good excuse to do a mid-continuity Marvel swimsuit special.
1: Oh, yeah, I love it. So that the X-Men are all dressed in these sort of Savage Land uniforms, which are torn up loincloths or whatever. If
0: I recall, Colossus is actually just wearing like a tiny Speedo straight up.
1: Hey, if you got it, flaunt it, right? And at one point Storm mentions that she was so grateful that the chief's uh, wife gave her these robes. And the robes are basically a torn up bikini and half a cape. Is that what they call robes in the Savage Land?
0: So I came up with a no prize explanation for this, which is that the chief's wife is about... A foot tall and five feet wide?
1: Oh, so so it's you have to sort of adapt the outfit for Storm to be able to wear it. So
0: on her, they are robes. They would, you know, drape. They'd be, you know, a long cape and something that, that sort of draped almost sari style over her. But on Storm, whose proportions somewhat differently, it's basically a bikini and a loincloth.
1: So listeners, you may have heard us mention a comic called Classic X-Men, which was reprints of the early Claremont run. And they would usually include a backup story, which was new material at the end of the issue.
0: Mike Mignola did the covers for them, and they're really cool.
1: I, I think the backup story to this issue, I, I don't remember what it was but I think one can safely assume that it's exactly what Rachel was talking about with the chief's wife being a foot tall and five feet wide. And it was drawn by Mike Mignola so look beautiful.
0: That's not a story. That's just a concept.
1: Well, also, Eric the Red shows up. There's your story.
0: Everyone is already Eric the Red. It's like it's like how in X-Men evolution, everyone is mystique, always.
1: Very similar. Uh, I feel like we're getting off topic here. That's because
0: the Savage Land is boring. There's literally nothing else important that happens here. They fight some guys, they punch some more pterosaurs,
1: and they leave. Well, no, there are some things that are going to come up later, so let me jump into those real quick. Uh-huh. Um, the basic premise is that this evil priestess named Zaladane is trying to resurrect this guy named Garak. Ooh, ooh, Petrified. I have a Zaladane Man. fact. Tell me your Zaladane fact. So,
0: Zaladane's name is Zaladane, one word, but she once used this fact to convince Lorna Dane, that's a given name and last name, that they were secretly sisters, because pretending to be related to Polaris is a supervillain shtick that's up there with cloning Jean Grey.
1: So, yeah, Zaladane and Garak, they first appeared in an Astonishing Tales issue. Like, the Savage Land, it's, it's not just an X-Men place it's obviously
0: not an X-Men place
1: you know they go and they help their old friend Kazar and Carl Lycos who is Sauron once they sort of de-Sauronify him
0: and they're always so okay with working with him and he always screws them over every single time it's always like well he doesn't mean to he doesn't mean to but he stalks them he's like I'll just drink a little bit of their mutant energy and it happens every time without fail
1: oh Carl well
0: and X-Men come on seriously
1: but anyway, so the X-Men fight Garak and Zaladane. They beat them. They leave. They leave the Savage Land, you know, in Kazar and Carol Lykos's hands. And things are good. After a really good I-beam duel between Cyclops and Garak, they're just shooting their lasers at each other. It's like something out of Dragon Ball Z. It's, I love it's very
0: it. end of Dark City.
1: Dark City is a better fictional property than Dragon Ball Z. So, yes, let's go with that. Dark City is amazing.
0: I, the Savage Land is boring. I like Dark City better. Can we just pretend that that's an X-Men arc?
1: Well, we're done with the Savage Land, so we don't Thank have to talk about God. it anymore. God. So the X-Men leave the Savage Land. Now at this point they haven't been in touch with uh, anyone in New York City, so Professor Xavier, Jean, whatever, in quite a while.
0: Professor X and Jean think they're dead. But here's what gets me, they don't tell anybody. Now, as far as we can tell, this is this was accidental. Like there isn't a conversation about like let's just not inform the next of kin of any of these people that they are presumably dead, but they don't. Colossus actually has a family. As far as I can tell, Havoc only finds out because they have to go to Mural Island for something. Jean doesn't tell Misty Knight, who's her roommate and who knows all of them and is friends with all of them. Like, And this is like two months of just being like, yep, you know. And they really believe they're dead. Like, it's not one of those they might be that they'll come back. It's like, they're dead.
1: They saw them get yep. crushed in a volcano deep underground, so it's, it's a reasonable <laughs> like assumption. Like, that's going
0: to stop them.
1: Well, the the, the new X-Men are kind of new at this thing. They don't realize that that's no big deal.
0: They are really new at it, and something that comes up again and again in this is that they are still really feeling out their dynamic and figuring out how to work together.
1: Right, especially in combat. There are a couple of fights where the villains outright state, hey, you guys don't have the teamwork you need to beat us, to beat me.
0: We're going to get back to that in a minute, but for now we are headed to Japan.
1: What happens with the X-Men, they're leaving the Savage Land on a raft. They're actually picked up by this Japanese sort of, I, I'm not sure if it's a, if it's a freighter or a fisherman. No, it's boat. it's a
0: it's some kind of covert government mission because they can't. They're not supposed to be picking them up, but they notice that they're in distress and they're going to drown. Otherwise, they can't tell them what they're doing there, and they have to go straight back to Japan.
1: So the other people who are going to Japan at this point are Misty Knight and Colleen Wing. Now we've mentioned Misty Knight before. We've
0: also mentioned Colleen Wing. I think or we've at least mentioned Daughters of the Dragon, which is the series that that the two of them headline in, which is one of my all-time favorite. Gets lost in history a lot Marvel comics.
1: At this point in Marvel history, Misty Knight and Colleen Wing, they mostly hung out with Power Man and Iron Fist, who had their own book. So Colleen Wing, she is a Japanese-American samurai slash detective, Let's just think about that phrase for a moment. I, I want to hang out with this person just knowing that. Colleen
0: uh, Wing is one of the great unsung— actually, I mean, they're really both among the great unsung badasses of the Marvel Universe.
1: At this point, they're going. she's going for more of the detective thing. We don't see her skills as a samurai or her background uh, really come up. She also is drawn as very Caucasian, but eh, whatever. It's, there are many crimes of the, of the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and that, that portrayal
0: but varies very widely. Misty Knight is so awesome. Misty really Knight great. is basically Pam Greer. She's a former cop. She has a robot arm. She has a fucking awesome afro. There's an issue, I think it's classic X Men 113, where she punches a shark. In the face.
1: If you have a robot arm, you have a moral obligation to find a shark and punch it at least once in your life. So Mister and Collie Wing, they're in Japan. And going, Japan
0: you, is on fire.
1: Yeah, the X-Men get there and they're like, holy crap, Japan's on fire. This isn't how I like, remembered Japan being. all of being. it. So they, they get out of the boat and they ch- go to check it out. Wolverine looks at a newspaper to see what's going on. And Cyclops says, you read Japanese? Yup, I didn't know. You never asked. And this is something that's going to be a theme in this sort of mini-arc that we're discussing today.
0: Is that Wolverine we- is a person. Wolverine has backstory that the X-Men don't know. And part of why they don't know is that he's a hostile little fucker and he doesn't tell them anything. But part of why they don't know is that they've always just taken that as face value. And this is this is really the first time that we see that there is, in fact, a lot more to him. Dave Cockrum, who drew the first few Claremont arcs, is a big Nightcrawler fan. And so Nightcrawler ends up sort of front and center in a lot of that. And John Byrne, who's taken over at this point, is really more of a Wolverine guy. And so you see Wolverine becoming much more prominent. And that's partly because of relevant stories, but it's largely through the influence of the artist and the collaboration.
1: Marvel, the way they did art back then and mostly do now as I understand it is the uh the writer would sort of come up with a very very loose outline of what was going on in the issue. The artist would then draw that and the writer would fill in dialogue.
0: And this worked spectacularly when you had a team who worked in close collaboration and were on the same page, and when you didn't, it broke down spectacularly. And we're going to be coming to that much later. But for now, Byrne and Claremont are really in sync because of where Byrne's interests lie. The character focus is shifting a little bit in the direction of Wolverine. Where it will
1: remain for the rest of our natural fucking lives. Now, we talk a lot of shit about Wolverine on the show, but the fact is, at this point in X-Men history, he is a legitimately engaging, interesting character, and I like him a lot.
0: Well, and he's new. This This is new stuff. This isn't, let's retcon his origin story for the millionth time. This is, let's gradually and organically reveal interesting stuff about him and details and actually develop the character. Everything he does is what's defining him as the character who we will later all <laughs> learn to become completely sick of.
1: Right. And of course, you cannot have Japan without Sunfire.
0: Sunfire is so disappointing here, though. So we, we love Sunfire so much. If you've been listening since Giant Size number one, you know that Sunfire is our favorite jerk.
1: So Sunfire's whole thing, and Giants has X Men number one, and the issue of X-Men that immediately follows it, is that he quits the team three times, and he's a dick about it every time.
0: Once, he does it twice on one page. He gives no fucks. And so he's on the cover of this issue, and we both got to it, and we we're like, yes, Sunfire! Oh, he's being a team player.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's still a little bit of a jerk, so Misty Knight comes and uh, tells him to not kill the X-Men. Misty Knight, you dare? And later on, he's got a, mind your place, woman! But he does have a hot cousin. Yes, and that hot cousin is Mariko Yoshida. Now, if you are a Wolverine fan...
0: You know who this lady is. You know that she will be influencing years of character arcs.
1: Right now, we don't really know much about her. She's a sort of demure, traditionally dressed young woman. And Wolverine is really smitten with her. And we immediately see a side of Wolverine we haven't seen before at all. Even when he was pining after Jean, he was still very much gruff Wolverine Canadian hairy claw dude. And in this case, he's kind of a gentleman toward her.
0: Yeah, he likes her. He's like, he's literally just trying to start conversations with her. Wolverine in Japan is largely and frequently very, very different from Wolverine elsewhere. His relationship to that culture and country and the story arcs that come out of it, I think are among the things that make the character most three-dimensional and and interesting. And we're starting to see the first vestiges of that in this arc. Um, It's not going to be developed for a long time.
1: All of a sudden, because it's X-Men and you really can't go very many pages without a fight of some sort, we are attacked by mandroids. Mandroids. Do they eat witches?
0: These guys are anticipating the sudden flood of portmanteaus. Do they manscape?
1: I mean, if you have a question, they'll certainly mansplain the answer to you.
0: Mansplaining mandroids? Not all mandroids.
1: (laughs) Not all mandroids. There we go. Mandroids are these robot suits that were originally designed by Tony Stark and then built by S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, they tend to show up in a lot of places just because villains can just sort of buy them if you need to turn some dudes into badasses. You buy some mandroid suits, and then they inevitably get beaten up by the heroes anyway, but at least it looks cool while it happens.
0: Because Tony Stark ruins the Marvel Universe.
1: So, the mandroids attack, uh, the X-Men win, but Sunfire kind of gets his ass kicked, which I think is a humbling moment for the character and that it may explain why, sadly, he's more of a team player for the remainder of the arc. <sighs>
0: Then we see the guy who's behind the androids, who appears as a hologram, being a proper supervillain and knowing proper supervillain etiquette, and it's a guy named Moses Magnum. What is the deal with Moses Magnum?
1: Okay, Moses Magnum is what I like to think of as a general-purpose Marvel Universe villain. He's not all that closely tied to any hero or any book. He did first show up as a Spider-Man antagonist, but he's fought a lot of other teams and yeah, individuals Yeah, the footnotes well. say that he
0: most recently appeared at that point in Power Man and Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. which I guess explains why Misty and Colleen are there, because they've been mostly in that book as well.
1: I mean, there's really not a lot to say about Moses Magnum. He has these sort of earthquakey powers, and he's kind of a terrorist who's in it for the money. He's
0: got something called Magnum Force, which I assume has shown up in at least one condom commercial by now.
1: See, I just think it's a bunch of people with Magnum in their name, so like it's him and Magnum P.I., and... I'm sure there are some other Magnums as well. Moses
0: Magnum P.I.?
1: There's a book I would read. Rucka, if you're still listening, this is your next title after Cyclops.
0: Oh, Moses Magnum P.I. can investigate the secret of Corsair's mustache.
1: This is the greatest thing Marvel will ever have published. So anyway, Moses Magnum's whole deal is that he is essentially holding Japan for ransom, saying he's going to blow up the whole freaking country using his powers unless they give him a shit ton of money. And they're like, no, 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 we're we're not going to do that. X-Men, you're the heroes that are here. Uh, You and Sunfire need to take this dude out. And the X-Men say, well... Okay, let's do it.
0: And Moses Magnum, again, being a generic supervillain, of course has a volcano base that they have to break into because, you know, volcano bases. It's
1: more of an island base, but it's a volcanic island, so I think we can count it.
0: Just because it's made on volcanic rock does not make it an actual volcano base, okay? Oh, man. Name five volcano bases.
1: There are no supervillain gatekeepers. You should know this.
0: There are totally... If anyone has gatekeepers, it's got to be supervillains.
1: Well, they shouldn't. That's mean. Smiling doesn't cost extra. It It does if you're
0: Dr. Doom. You have to make a whole other mask for it.
1: Good point. So, they fight Moses Magnum, and they, they essentially have this kind of cool mutant heist plot, so I'm gonna go over this. Misty Knight and Colleen Wing, they've found the base using their detective abilities, I guess. Banshee's going around taking out, like, the scanners and the the sonic weapons, which of course they have, because you want to make sure, if you're a supervillain, you tailor your base defenses to the superheroes who are going after you. And then Storm is going after the guards using an ice storm, and, like, Cyclops and Sunfire are burrowing this big tunnel underground as they go to get the rest of the This is actually X-Men a in. super
0: cool co-op move. So, Cyclops, obl- Blasts out the rock and then Sunfire uses his powers to basically melt the sides of the tunnel and keep it in place and from falling in and crushing them.
1: I just I just picture it going back and forth like in any good heist movie, like going from character to character to character with his sort of driving badass music the whole time. Yes. And everyone looks very stylish.
0: Oh, man, I'm so into this. I've been watching a lot of leverage lately. So this is this is really my jam right now.
1: Uh, they, they do, in fact, infiltrate uh, Moses Magnum's island volcano base. And they're, they're fighting him, and he eventually, as the fight has, continues for a bit, runs away and says, Screw you guys, I said I was going to blow up Japan if you didn't do what I wanted, and now I'm going to blow up Japan.
0: Because he's actually kind of good at his supervillain job.
1: Banshee goes after him and realizes that he can counteract Moses Magnum's power using his own sonic scream.
0: And he completely burns out his powers and he ends up comatose. But he does it. He totally saves the day.
1: One of the things I love about Claremont's run was that consequences, they lasted back then. So Banshee's powers are burned out in this issue. For the remainder of Banshee's tenure on the X-Men until he shows up again, like, dozens of issues later, his powers are gone. They stay gone for a really long time. He's seriously injured himself.
0: Well, and he's running with the team still for another 10 issues, too, with no powers.
1: Right, and that's where we see him, you know, his experience as a detective and as a really good hand-to-hand combatant and just as a generally smart and brave guy.
0: Banshee's rad.
1: Yes, more love for Banshee. Then we cut back. Like I said, there's a lot of cutting back and forth between the X-Men who are trying to get home and the remaining X-Men characters in sort of America, New York City, whatever. So Jean at this point is heading out to uh, Scotland. She's like, well, my the love of my life is dead. All of my friends are dead. I need to move on. So she I'm
0: also hella possessed by a big magic cosmic force and I have no idea what's going on here but Moira McTaggart she's a Nobel Prize winner. She's way better than Professor Xavier who's actually you know who's not even there. He's traveling in space with his space girlfriend.
1: He got sad because his X-Men died and went off with Lelandra to space because the Shi'ar Empire which as you will recall she she's the leader of they finally went through their, their paperwork after the previous emperor died and they're like okay yeah it's all clear you need to be to ascend the throne.
0: So she's off to go do that and he's he's going with her to be her space boyfriend. Uh, Jean heads out to Muir Island to meet up with uh, Moira McTaggart Jamie Madrock's multiple man, who's Mara's sort of lab assistant and buddy, um, and who exists mostly to get knocked out during this era and Huffick and Polaris, who are hanging out there after the whole getting possessed by Ark the Red Deal, trying to get their lives back together.
1: So Jean's going to spend some time there for a while. We also have a cool cut to a guy that I'd forgotten came back. So you may remember, listeners,
0: that the X-Men, last time they went to Muir Island, tried to rent a hovercraft, and it did not go well.
1: And apparently, this was like this turning point in the life of hovercraft rental mustache guy, who we learn here is named Angus McWhorter, which is a great name.
0: And he shows up trying to blow Up, Muir Island.
1: I mean, I kind of feel like that's an overreaction. It's like, oh, because they
0: because the superheroes stole his hovercraft.
1: Therefore, I'm going to blow up an entire lab installation.
0: I God, I love this guy so much.
1: He's just terrible. It's too
0: bad he's super doomed because he immediately gets possessed by someone named Mutant X. Now we saw Mutant X briefly, or rather, we saw the cell he had been held in in X Men 104. Right after the X Men fought Magneto, we don't know who he is. We don't know what he is. But we know that he is the rapid and grisly end of Angus McWhorter, the angriest hovercraft rental owner.
1: So we will come back to Mutant X very shortly. But in the meantime, Canada. Canada, Canada,
0: Canada, Canada. Now, you may recall if you've read Giant Size X-Men that Wolverine was working for the Canadian military and X basically lured him away and the Canadian military was not happy. This is where that comes back to bite him in the ass.
1: Now, uh, we did actually skip an issue that was in the run we covered last time, where uh, a member of the Canadian military, this dude named Weapon Alpha, who's in a big... James Hudson. Yes, he's in a big sort of Canadian flag-looking white and red suit, and he can fly. It's really speed skater-looking. It is. Um, But he goes back to retrieve Wolverine and say, hey, you left, you know, we put a lot of money into developing you as a super-powered person you need to come back. And Wolverine says, screw you, man.
0: And the X-Men handily kick his ass and send him back to Canada.
1: Right, and that seemed like sort of a one-off, but we find out here, no, it's not, because he is the leader of a team called Alpha Flight.
0: So the X-Men are headed home from Japan at this point, and they are, they are flying back, I believe, via Alaska? They're flying back with Colleen Wing, and uh, there is a big storm. It's not a normal storm, and it's not a storm of their making, and it's not a storm that storm can significantly impact, and the plane crashes in the wild Canadas.
1: And we get a little cool little Calgary history lesson travel guide from Claremont, because he always does this when he he takes the X-Men to a new place, which I love. And the X-Men are pretty immediately confronted by Alpha Flight, this team of Canadian superheroes that the Canadian government has been kind of sponsoring and developing, that Wolverine used to be a member of. Another thing I love about teams that show up in Claremont's run is they always have, like, all the characters are clearly designed with a lot of love. So we have uh, Vindicator. Now, he was called Weapon Alpha the first time he showed up. Uh, which, of course, that type of designation will later be retconned away even more when we yeah, learn that... Yeah, you
0: need to forget the Weapon Alpha title because it will only confuse you from here on. He's Vindicator. Yes, yeah,
1: so he's Vindicator now. And then we have Northstar and Aurora. We have Shaman, or Shaman, as he was called on the X-Men cartoon, Snowbird and Sasquatch.
0: So Northstar and Aurora are basically the super creepy Wonder Twins. They are kind of kind fucked in the head.
1: They are, Um. And but Northstar... They we're think gonna... they're
0: elves for a while? That happens later?
1: <laughs> That's one of those pieces of continuity it might be best to ignore.
0: Are you kidding? That's awesome awesome
1: so but Northstar, uh he's going to become a major player in the x-men in the future years he's also one of the first canonically gay marvel characters i
0: thought he was the first canonically gay marvel hero and aurora is his twin they both they can both fly they're both super fast they're both super strong and they can do team-up moves that involve sudden bright flashes of light when they're touching
1: each other and very briefly vindicator he essentially has a super suit that lets him fly and shoot energy uh we also have shaman I don't, how would you describe him Rachel? well
0: he's he is a doctor. He defied his father's wishes and went to Western medical school. He uses traditional magic and a lot of totemic-based magic to do superhero stuff, and he's the one who's calling up the big storm. Mm
1: -hmm. He's also got a really sweet orange and green costume that I love.
0: I actually really like all of Alpha Flight's costumes. I think they're a great example of a team that have fairly individual looks they don't have logos on their suits but they're still cohesively and clearly like the same team they all have this stylized maple leaf starbursty thing going on and it works really well like it makes them look like a group mm-hmm.
1: and the other two members we have are snowbird who can change herself into various arctic animals she can I change guess? herself
0: into any on uh, canadian native species i think
1: that's a really specific power i wonder how that works
0: Or right, it, it might specifically be arctic i know it's i know they're all white with blue eyes that's a thing
1: and we have now talked more about Snowbird's powers than really they ever deserved to be talked about. But that's what this podcast is here for, listeners. This is what we do. And then the last member is Sasquatch, who is a dude who turns into a big orange Sasquatch for And Sasquatch a is
0: basically Beast. Like, he's the guy who's super articulate and soft-spoken, really chill, and totally a big furry brawler.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so the X-Men fight Alpha Flight, and they actually, they're not really prepared. They've been through some major shit recently, and Banshee is still in terrible shape. So they run the hell away in this a natural Calgary winter, which I think is quite reasonable.
0: Yeah, they're screwed. And this is this is Miles mentioned before that they're gonna face enemies who they can't take out because they can't work together. And Alpha Flight knows how to fight like a team.
1: It's actually kind of cool the way the timing works. Like, they're running away, they're running away, and they they end up having enough time for instance to go into a department store where they try to find a good disguise for Storm so she looks less conspicuous. Yeah, because she's
0: like six feet tall and she has really, really long white hair and her own personal breeze.
1: If I had weather powers my hair would always be flowing back in a cool direction. Always. So, they do end up fighting again. They're sort of splitting up and Alpha Flight manages to capture both Wolverine and Nightcrawler. The other X-Men go against them. Cyclops basically says, hey, they're two of ours. There's no no way we're leaving the me. If Wolverine doesn't want to go, he's not going to go. So they fight, and it's actually a really long, cool fight scene. The highlight for me, though, is this little bit of dialogue between Snowbird and Storm. Says Snowbird.
0: You may be a match for my human form, woman, but can even you stand against a giant arctic owl?
1: I feel like that's a question we can confidently state that Storm has never been asked before. It becomes clear during the course of this fight that the weather patterns that Shaman has uh, brought the X-Men down using, he's really he really doesn't fully understand them. Weather isn't his bag the way it's storms.
0: And he has created a giant blizzard that is going to usher in the next Ice Age and destroy Canada unless they figure out how to calm it down. My favorite thing about this fight is that Vindicator keeps apologizing.
1: I don't want to go into the Canadian stereotype thing, but he does. You're right. Oh my god,
0: He's so polite. And that's the thing with Alpha Flight is that they're not super villains. They are doing this because as far as they're concerned, Wolverine is a deserter. They are not setting out to hurt the X-Men. They're really not setting out to cause a lot of collateral damage, even though they obviously do. There are points where they just stop the fight or leave to try to, you know, to, to save civilians and stuff. And it's it's interesting watching that because we've seen the X-Men go up against a lot of villains who just don't care. And we've seen them do most of their fighting, you know, in isolated bases or up in the sky. And this is them fighting team of superheroes in a major population center that's those superheroes home base and it really changes things
1: anyway this fight continues storm realizes that this weather he's not really the expert with whether the storm is by a long shot and so storm realizes that this weather pattern is going to screw up canada it's going to just wreck the entire country essentially storm first uh, does fix the weather herself and yeah. it, it takes a very long time but after that wolverine says hey you know what screw it my friends are getting hurt fine i'm gonna go with you guys let's just end this
0: the X-Men are really bummed about this so they, and they head back to the Blackbird and Wolverine's there waiting for them because he of course escaped off panel and I like this it's never explained he's just like yeah they ain't built a cage that could hold me let's let's go home and they do.
1: I'm assuming this involved him cutting through metal with claws because that's pretty much what he does and maybe
0: like also a bunch of people.
1: He does murder a lot yeah, of he people. D- he, murder-
0: he does a lot of murdering.
1: That's actually something we see back in the Savage Land is that Wolverine just straight up kills like quite a few people and it freaks the other X-Men out. But they're like, well, times are tough. You do you. Okay. So anyway, the X-Men leave Canada. They they fly away again. The issue that's after this, normally we would skip over issues that are considered to be filler. But for me, the next issue, which is number 122, it's an issue called Cry for the Children. It's actually one of my favorites in this whole era. It's purely character work and set up for plot stuff that's going to come through later.
0: This is one of those quiet, calm before the storm issues. They head back to New York and they've got the mansion themselves because, again, Xavier has just straight up disappeared. As far as they know, Gene and Hank are dead and Xavier's just gone. Like, he didn't, he didn't leave a note saying, went to space with my space babe. I'll call someday. He just left. He, he turned off all the utilities and left.
1: So, yeah, the X-Men have the X-Mansion back, and to the best of their knowledge, they're the ones who are left, except for Professor, Professor X, who they just cannot locate, so they figure, well, let's move on with our life, I hope he's okay, and so they're training in the Danger Room, and Colossus is having kind of a crisis of confidence after getting his ass handed to him in a lot of the recent fights, and so, you know, his strength isn't working as well as it should, he's in this big Danger Room crusher machine should we get a crusher machine at home we don't have even one crusher machine no okay well
0: yeah I, I assume that this is it that that would be against the terms of our lease but we can always ask
1: i think it's worth asking so wolverine just goes into the danger room and gets in the crusher machine with colossus saying well you know i've i've lived a long enough well, first
0: he punches out the controls so cyclops who's up in the control booth can't stop it
1: right and you know colossus helps that, that helps Colossus regain his confidence it's kind of cool but um
0: and to be fair wolverine is pretty much indestructible
1: Although at this point, uh, it should be pointed out, we have not heard anything about Wolverine having a healing factor.
0: That is a really good point. Mm-hmm.
1: That's not for quite a while. In this issue, we see that uh, Cyclops and Colleen Wing, they're actually dating at this point. Like, they're, they're straight up dating.
0: They do go get ice cream sundaes at a soda fountain, which I guess is, is about as dating as you can get.
1: About as dating as Cyclops can get. Yeah. We're really seeing Cyclops kind of not as the superhero team leader um, in a way that we haven't seen very much yet. Well,
0: and we're seeing him specifically as not the original X-Men team leader. In this issue, he talks about the fact that he's been trying to make this team replicate the dynamics of the old X-Men in terms of the way they work together, and that maybe that's not possible, and maybe the fact that that's not possible isn't a bad thing.
1: And it's actually in uh, one of the upcoming issues, uh, he says, but I think it's relevant now, You're all such strong and strong-willed individuals. I doubt you'll ever mesh as effectively as the original X-Men. I'm not even sure that's a desirable goal anymore. We also see Jean Grey, who's in Scotland at this point, you know, at Muir Island, meeting a guy named Jason Wingard, who's this sort of dashing, like, goth club Victorian-looking dude. Uh,
0: you may recall him from the Silver Age as Mastermind, Marvel's first creepy-ass MRA pickup artist. We're not going to talk about him. He is going to be a running theme in the next couple issues. But what he is doing is laying the groundwork for the Dark Phoenix Saga. But we're going to go into this in a lot more detail two weeks from now.
1: And this is more Claremont long game stuff. It's going to be seven months before the Dark Phoenix Saga really kicks in and he's already showing up, which is awesome. My favorite thing about this issue, it's a scene where Storm goes into Harlem. Now, Uh, You may recall that Storm has been a lot of places in her life when she was a very, very small child. Until
0: she was something like six months old.
1: Right, so very small. Yeah, she was in uh, Harlem with her parents. And she remembers
0: this because she had full memory and access to memory and, like, object permanence as an infant. And this is something that Claremont specifically tells us in the comics.
1: She's basically trying to rediscover her roots, which is interesting. You know, normally the idea of discovering your roots, you sort of go back to where where you're— Uh, heritage was generations before, but in Storm's case, she spent most of her life as, or much of her life as a goddess in Kenya. For her, going back to her roots is going to a western urban city. And one of the things I really love about Storm, and I think one of the things that makes her hard to pin down by many writers, she's so multifaceted. She has all these parts of her background and parts of her personality that you don't traditionally see going together.
0: I think she and Wolverine make a really interesting study in contrasts because they're both Very, very much set up in terms of their backgrounds and their interaction with other people as liminal figures. Yeah, if Wolverine
1: is between animal and humanity, then Storm is between humanity and divinity, I think is the way I would put it.
0: At the same time, I think that creates, over years and years, a dynamic of those two characters interacting and reflecting and getting each other in ways that neither of them does with very many others. Like, those are both very difficult characters to foil well, and they're really interesting together
1: so in this scene um, yeah storms in harlem and she goes to where her family used to live like the apartment they used to live in and she finds it's what it's what's described in a very claremont fashion as a shooting gallery it's basically a bunch of teenagers all messed up on drugs just sort of squatting there
0: i want to pull away from the story for a second because it's covered with graffiti if you actually look at their graffiti what you basically learn is that before that it was pretty much occupied by the 1970s marvel bullpen
1: Yes, it's it's all like little like i was assuming
0: that they're the ones who wrecked it,
1: <laughs> but yeah. So she's just trying to see what's going on, and they they sort of attack her. They first they just think you know she's on their turf, and they want to get some money from her, or else they're going to hurt her. And then they think she might be a cop, and so she goes into full on storm mode after trying to go there as somebody who would fit into Harlem.
0: I think this is also the first place you see that Storm definitely knows how to take someone with a knife out.
1: She, her hand to hand combat skills are really good, um, and then, she will
0: straight up stab a bitch later.
1: Uh, Power Man and Misty Knight show up and sort of sort of check in with her after that. But yeah, this this issue, it's just it's got a lot of good character work. That's really, I think it's so important that Claremont has taken the time in all of these issues. To really make these characters three-dimensional, to make them characters that we know and love before the Dark Phoenix Saga, where everything just kind of goes to hell.
0: And to set up the camaraderie that the Dark Phoenix Saga is about. Because, I mean, the Dark Phoenix Saga is about the Phoenix stuff, but it's also about the X-Men coming together and giving everything up in solidarity with one of their number. I mean, I don't think the Dark Phoenix Saga and the things, especially the climax of that, is a story that would have rung, rung true or could have happened before this foundation was laid.
1: So we have one more big plotline to go before the Dark Phoenix Saga. And this is one you may have heard of. It's one of the somewhat more well-known plotlines. It's about Proteus.
0: Proteus is Mutant X. Mutant X is the mysterious mutant who got released in X-Men 104 when the X-Men fought Magneto on Muir Island.
1: So he's currently in Hovercraft Rental Mustache Guy. Yeah,
0: he's possessing Hovercraft Rental Mustache Guy, who is now looks like a walking corpse.
1: We're cutting back and forth at the beginning of the story to a few different things. One of them is seeing Angus McWhorter, who's clearly possessed and getting zombified moment by moment. The beginning of the story is where a lot of the plot lines that that have been sort of going apart really start to come together and we see that on actually the cover of number 125 it's the x-men in new york city it's phoenix it's the other characters on muir island
0: so we're gonna get the band back together here
1: now it opens with moira mctaggart she's sort of in full scientist mode she's got this great yellow and pink jumpsuit that we're gonna it's gonna be her iconic look for the rest of the time she's a character in x-men i
0: love that she has what's basically she wears a superhero costume to do science You know, are you going to tell her no? She's Nobel Prize winner Moira McTaggart. She's got her own damn research facility. She's got a crazy mutant son chained to the radiator in a back room. Or does she?
1: Or does she? So that's all happening on Muir Island as far as Mutant X escaping and possessing Hovercraft guy. Um, there's the X-Men uh, training in the danger room. There's there, there are a couple interludes like to Magneto in space. We haven't seen him in a while. And he's just
0: he's he's just brooding in space. It's just a page of Magneto brooding in space.
1: Which I kind of like because this is where we start seeing Magneto as something other than just a grandiloquent uh, supervillain. Like yeah, we're he's actually... a grandiloquent
0: supervillain who broods in space.
1: And then we have another interlude more Jason Wingard stuff in Scotland. He details a little bit of his plot. Like Rachel said we're going to get to that uh, in full when we get to the Dark Phoenix saga itself.
0: Short version mastermind is the worst he kind of is the worst
1: and then we see xavier in space who quickly realizes that he's going to uh the gene holy crap she has powers that she really won't be able to control i need to get back there and help her he's
0: also just being a huge dick like his girlfriend is getting crowned empress and he's just like he's he's bitching because he's like you know there's all this ceremony and i don't get to hang out with you and do whatever i want it's like dude you followed her to space for her to be crowned empress of like an enormous space empire in the middle of six wars. What did you expect? What did you think was going to happen?
1: I feel like Rachel, you're being the the angry narrator toward Xavier even more than Claremont ever was.
0: He's he's so mean to Lalandra in this this issue. It makes I don't know. It's just it's frustrating. Like because they seem like a really good couple, but then he's just super passive aggressive in
1: space. Well, the point is, we have all of these interludes with Claremont cutting back and forth to pretty much every plot thread that he's had because uh, this, this storyline is going to bring a lot of them, but not all of them them together. One of the first things that happens is that Beast is checking out the X-Mansion. It's presumably he periodically has been uh, since, you know, nobody who lives there is alive anymore. fish. Whatever. And he sees that the X-Men are alive and he's just over freaking joy, which, I mean, that makes sense. Like he's, he's thought for months at this point that his best friends who he spent a large part of his life with had died in a freaking volcano. And it turns out they're great. They're fine. That's awesome. And it, it's really genuinely touching and satisfying, I think.
0: And Beast being Beast, you know, hugs more enthusiastically than everyone else put together
1: forever. Uh, after that, they, they call it Muir Island because that's the first they know that there are actually the other characters on Muir Island.
0: Yeah, so Beast's alive, which means that Jean's alive, which means, oh my god!
1: Right, everything's gonna be okay, guys!
0: And, and they're like, oh yeah, and Xavier's in space. So.
1: But when they call Muir Island, they get Polaris on the phone, Cyclops does, and she's inter- the, the call is interrupted as she has this, like, blood-curdling scream. So, of course, the X-Men jump into action and get on their plane and um, head to Muir Island as quickly as, as they can to, you know, see what's going on.
0: And what's going on is, of course, that Jamie Madrox has once again been taken out by a villain. As far as I can tell, his job at Muir Island is to be the canary in the mineshaft.
1: Right. Oh, well, Jamie got punched and he's unconscious. I guess we should get ready for battle. And
0: in this case, specifically, the guy who's been possessing um, the hovercraft jerk has completely burned out his body. It's a mummified husk. He's just gone and stolen one of Jamie's duplicates.
1: Basically, this turns into, I wouldn't exactly call it a murder mystery, but it's the X-Men on the trail of Mutant X, who identifies himself pretty quickly as Proteus, that's the name he's chosen, as he goes from body to body to body, and the X-Men are trying to figure out, well, who is he possessed this time?
0: Proteus is a mutant who's basically made of energy, and he can survive in bodies briefly, But he burns through them very, very fast. And so he has to continually find new ones. And as soon as he takes over a body, it's effectively dead. Whoever was in there before is just gone for good. But that's not all he is. There's something that significantly complicates the hunt for Proteus. And that is that he is Moira McTaggart's kid.
1: Right. That's why he was locked up in Muir Island. Proteus is her son, and from very early on his powers became clear, and she didn't know a way to A, keep him alive without him having to possess a bunch of people other than putting him in this sort of machine chamber cell, and B, she was worried about the damage he could do, and apparently rightly so.
0: Proteus' dad is a big-deal Scottish politician who is effectively Moira's ex-husband but refuses to grant her a divorce because being married to a Nobel Prize-winning scientist is politically advantageous. During Proteus's presumably super-dysfunctional childhood, they spent a lot of time fighting. I think his dad was was like specifically domestically abusive.
1: Well, specifically, um, the last time... No, he, he, Proteus had never met his dad because... The last time uh, Moira saw Joe was when she left him where he straight up beat the hell out of her and raped her and that was Proteus' conception and this is... This is a plot point that makes me kind of uncomfortable. Overall, I like the story a lot. I think it's a very good one. But essentially, we see Proteus as this straight up implicitly and explicitly defined evil character, not just like misunderstood and gray, but evil. He is evil. The story implies, at least Proteus states, that this is because he was a product of violence and rape, which is a pretty messed up statement to make, I think. Yeah,
0: that's a horrible message. There is a lot about the Proteus story that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And I think some of it is very explicitly written, too. Like, there's there's some of it that's just very specifically creepy and off and called out as creepy and off within the comic. It's a really uncomfortable story to read for a lot of reasons. And that is that is, I think, chief among them.
1: And I would say second among them is that once Proteus, in the body of Joe McTaggart, Moira's ex-husband and Which is Proteus's his goal. Mother. Like, all
0: he knows is that Moira hates Joe. Moira is the only person he's ever interacted with, so he decides he's going to find Joe and kill him. He takes over him and kind of merges with him.
1: And so at that point, we have Moira's son merged with Moira's ex-husband, and it's got these these weird incesty overtones. It like, is
0: literally the most Oedipal story ever. Like it is, it is more edible than the Sophocles play Oedipus Rex.
1: That part is supposed to be creepy, and I think it's handled in a creepy but okay fashion.
0: Yeah the the why the why Proteus is evil stuff is just really problematic within the comic. But this is this is actually acknowledged as really screwed up and creepy, and um, ultimately. Mara shoots and kills him, doesn't she?
1: She tries. Cyclops stops her. The way that Proteus does die, after doing a lot of reality manipulation stuff, which is his other—that's that, his other big power in in possession, um, they find out his only weakness is metal, which, okay.
0: Oh, right, yeah. Is
1: it like a Mega Man villain or something?
0: You know.
1: Use the metal blade. If, and- oh,
0: if only they—you they, 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 have to fight Magneto first and get his weapon,
1: Oh, there we go! And, and then, then you, you can, can
0: use that to take out Proteus.
1: Well, the X Men did the levels in the wrong order. That's the problem.
0: Oh my God! The Dark Phoenix Saga could have ended so differently. It could
1: have. They they use a you know a series of team moves where the X Men will each use their own abilities to weaken Proteus, and eventually they force him out of his body, out of the body he's possessing, which is essentially dust at this point, and Colossus punches him colossus is made of metal and proteus just dissipates and is very clearly very permanently dead and i don't believe proteus has ever come back actually um except for alternate universe versions of him of course which you know that always happens yeah uh, frequently
0: in those he's retconned to being professor xavier's kid or he's merged with legion who's actually professor xavier's kid in 616 and is a whole other variety of severely severely screwed up xavier's generation and like his group the the you know, xavier Magneto moira all have just really bad parenting skills.
1: It's true, they do. Honestly, I think of those, Magneto may be the best.
0: That's really saying something. It's
1: really sad. So it's a big deal that Colossus does take a life here, but he acknowledges that, hey, this was necessary, this had to happen, this guy was irredeemable. The Proteus Saga, it's it's a really, really dark story, But I think it works. Now, we've talked about, for instance, X-Men Deadly Genesis in a past episode, which is a very dark saga that I don't think either of us think it works. What do you think makes the Proteus saga work better?
0: Um, It's a story, not an event.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So, uh, Rachel, do you want to take us out?
0: Rachel and Miles explain The X-Men is recorded at the Roseway in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out at Welcome to welcometothatwholething.com.
1: If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher and check out our shop at rachelandmiles.redbubble.com for t-shirts and stickers.
0: You can find a visual companion to this episode as well as blog posts, fan art, and additional fun at rachelandmiles.com.
1: Next week, we'll be taking a quick breather from Claremont for our first ever All Questions Spectacular. You'll notice we didn't have any questions this time, and that's why.
0: Because we're going to be spending the entire next episode diving into Secret Origins, ship Wars, The Siege Perilous. We'll address the all-important question of which of us would win in a fight, and we will teach you our secret tricks for actually making sense of crossovers.
1: We will see you next time.